TV you grew up with is brought to you by Scott Evest. Great clothing plus tons of pockets for your stuff. That's Scott Evest. To learn more and get a super special Scott Evest deal, go to jimherald.com slash vest. That's jimherald.com slash vest. Click on the link we provide there and use the coupon code jimherald. That's one word, jimherald, and you'll get 20% off your purchase. Thanks, Scott Evest. You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harold. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you today. And it's not often that we get to talk to a legend in a particular genre. But I think by any definition, uh, the gentleman on the other end of the line today is certainly that within his genre. And I'm talking about veteran actor Eric Braden. You probably know him as Victor Newman from The Young and the Restless. He's held that role as a kind of top dog in soap operas for 37 years. But he's done so much more. He's done Broadway. He's done motion pictures. He's been a producer. He's been an accomplished sportsman. And we'll talk about that as well. And he has uh, added a new chapter, so to speak, as an author. And his new book is I'll Be Damned, How My Young and Restless Life Led Me to America's Number One Daytime Drama. The man himself on the other end of the line, Eric Braden, welcome to the program today. Jim, how the hell are you? I am doing well, sir. I'm doing well. I just uh, finished the book in the last couple of days and I enjoyed it immensely now that's so nice to hear that well, is very nice to hear well I, I, I it was my pleasure now um i think it's really important maybe people who watch you on uh, young and the restless or have seen you in movies or so forth titanic and the different things you've done colossus the the forbin project maybe don't really realize your background but uh, you really go in depth pretty deep about your childhood, and it, it, it was not an easy one. Can you take us back a little bit and, and tell us how it, it always started uh, for Eric Braden before he was Eric Braden? I was born Hans-Jörg Gudegast in Kiel, Germany, K-I-E-L, on the Baltic Sea in the year 1941, and that was already the beginning of the bombings. And in fact, the hospital that I was born in was bombed to smithereens a day after. I left the hospital with my mother, and um, it ended up that the town was 96% destroyed, and they had uh, thrown approximately 500,000 bombs over that town alone. So um, it was a rather dramatic beginning. And, uh, you know, reading, uh, y- your family was impacted by the war and, uh, uh, and after the war, I mean, it seemed like you, you came from a family with some means, certainly, but there was a circumstance uh, change when you lost your, your father post-war at a very young age. And that seemed to shape a, a lot of your life. Can you talk about that shift from relative affluence and, and into something that, that was something quite different? Uh, my father was mayor of the town, and uh, during the uh, 12-year period, during the um, Second World War, he um, built roads and, and, and bunkers and um, did well. And then he 
uh, was imprisoned after the war because he belonged. He was an official. As a mayor, he obviously was uh, an official of the Nazi party and was imprisoned to be denazified and um, came back a year later. And things just went from bad to worse. During the war, we had uh, five big trucks uh, for construction of roads and all that. And during the war, the Nazis took three trucks in order to they were requisitioned to go to the front line somewhere. And two were left, and then after he came back from from uh, that uh, jail time, one was left. And um, so it was very, a very difficult struggle after that. But I have very fond memories of my dad, and uh, we're very close to him. And uh, um, after, the, after he came back from prison, it was already very difficult. And then he died suddenly, and uh, probably because of overwhelming debts. And... Uh, so then we were plunged into, well, into complete poverty. And had to move to the upstairs portion of the house we lived in and with a rather mean new landlord. And uh, my father died when I was 12, so by the time I was 13, 14, I um, you know, had to turn off the water sometimes and all that. And uh, I offered my mother to go down and beat him up. But anyway... <laughs> So you go up with a lot of rage afterwards and a lot of anger, and uh, but that has served me mostly well, to be honest with you. Um, if you control your anger and fury, um, it, it can serve you well, and it certainly has in my profession uh, as an actor. So, um, yeah, tough times, and if sometimes you hear people sort of romanticize poverty and the rise out of that poverty, well, there's nothing romantic about the lack of money or the lack of food. Trust me, nothing. Nothing at all. And uh, some lucky circumstances then allow you to to rise above that, but most people don't. And it's a dehumanizing and, and, and devastating um, uh, effect on people. And uh, there's nothing romantic about it and nothing good about it. Nothing. So um, um, in school, uh, I was always intellectually very curious. But in school, you're more concerned with, uh, you know, uh, whether there was enough money to, to pay for electricity or whatever it was, and, or enough food on the table, etc., etc. So instead of being able to devote yourself to... Um, uh, to education, and um, I just stayed intellectually curious in spite of it all, but what helped me more to get out of all this was sports, and that, that was my my saving grace, I would say, and uh, I got into, would have gone into ice hockey and, and, and soccer and boxing much earlier, but I had four brain concussions between the age of nine and 12, and therefore was forbidden to, to engage in any contact sports. I did anyway to a certain degree, but my, my emphasis was on track and field, on shot put and discus and javelin. And in 1958, at the age of 17, I won the German Youth Championship. So, and then I came to America at the age of 18. Um, anyway, the upbringing was, um, when you're in it, um, you still look forward to the few glimpses of, of, sunshine and, and great times and 
you know, girls were of great interest, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> and I bet it so was sports, mutual. <laughs> sports, yeah, sports and girls were always of great interest and probably, you know, helped me through that time. More than anything, I would say. Certainly not school, which it had been school, but I can't say that. Why America? Why did you choose to come to America? I had a cousin who um, um, came from a wealthy part of my family and from Hamburg, and she had studied medicine in, in Germany, in Tübingen, and uh, she had emigrated to America in the early 50s because a lot of uh, women of that generation um, didn't find anyone in Germany anymore because most of the, the best and the brightest and the toughest had died on the Russian front or the Western front or in North Africa. And so um, many of them married uh, foreigners. And um, she ended up marrying a Dutch doctor. But she was an oncologist and taught at the Medical University of Texas in Galveston. And uh, she came to visit in Germany. And I was very good in, in English in school. And she asked if I wanted to come to America. I said, yeah, why not? And, you know, we were huge fans of Elvis Presley and Louis Armstrong and... and um, were infused with a lot of American culture. And my big hero at the time was uh, the shot putter Perry O'Brien, and um, who had developed a new style, the O'Brien style. And I studied that, you know, very closely, and um, his technique. And so I, I was very enamored of a large part of American culture. And uh, so it wasn't a difficult decision to make. I really am interested, and I do want to get to your acting career, but I'm interested about in the book how you talk about how you came to, to terms with uh, uh, your homeland, Germany, and in what happened in the Second World War, and, and obviously the horrible things that happened, but certainly not something attributable to the whole German populace. But, uh, of course, that's but ridiculous. Really, right. It just as, by may I say, in America here, we've had our own struggles with civil rights, and oh my uh, God. atrocities, yeah, and atrocities. How about how about, how about since the seventeenth century? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Slavery. How about how about exactly. how about institutional antisemitism in America? Yes. Now yeah. none of that culminated in the horrors of the Second World War. Right. None of it culminated in the horrors uh, that the Nazis uh, visited upon uh, uh, Germany, and uh, none of it uh, compares to obviously the Holocaust. No question about that. But don't for one moment think that. Uh, of course, the Allies have always loved to point their finger at Germany and the 12-year period to divert attention away from uh, their own shit, and including, you know, hundreds of years of slavery and, exactly. and, and segregation, etc. I mean, it took till 1965 to have the Voting Rights Act, so let's not get too sanctimonious. Yes. Um, Anti-Semitism in Britain, in France, Russia, everywhere. So it's, it's, it's a horrendous legacy. And but none uh, um, uh, realize those anti feelings as much as as obviously Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. It's horrendous. It's it's almost unfathomable. But one thing I was going to say is something that you did, and many people would not have. Some people would have said, "Well, you know, I <laughs> I was four years old when the war ended. I had nothing to do with this. It's not my problem." But you went out of your way. Yeah. Uh, to do the little bit that one person could do to to, yeah. to reach out and try to build bridges, and uh, particularly being uh, on the Maccabees uh, soccer team, which is a Jewish right. soccer team, and and uh, I think even being 
recognized by the government of Israel. You really went out of your way, even though you had nothing to do with it. In fact, you were a victim of the Second World War. But you, as uh, being of uh, uh, of German lineage, you went out of your way to to address those wrongs. Yeah. Well, let me let me put this way. First of all, I'm proud of the country I come from, Germany. Secondly, Germans are the largest ethnic group in America. Uh, unbeknownst to most Americans, meaning the contributions of German immigrants in this country have been substantial and 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 deep and um, formative. Um, so, having said that, as a conscious human being who has any kind of feelings uh, in 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 his soul, um, you cannot simply uh, realize what happened during that time and not be deeply moved by it, um, one way or the other. I know a lot of uh, German immigrants who, who, who want to de- you know, not talk about it, and, and, and as you said, had nothing to do with it chronologically, and therefore ignore it. I can't do that. And a lot of Germans in my generation don't do that. And they have done everything in their power to, to rectify those problems, and that includes acknowledging what happened during that time. Germany is probably the only country in the world that has revisited those crimes more than anyone else ever has. Certainly more than America. America only had an uh, uh, institution for African Americans, a museum, opened last year. I mean, think about that. Or this year. Yeah, that, seems, that seems rather strange, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary when you think about it. And uh, Germany for decades now has, has openly acknowledged the crimes that were committed during that time and has tried to rectify them. You know, the support of Israel by the German government has been uh, continuous and substantial and will continue to, to be so. Um, so, but do I understand some of my fellow Germans who who don't know how to deal with it and, and become defensive? I understand that. I really do. And I vacillated between those two reactions. And I decided to to um, um, not ignore it, to confront it directly. And I created the German American Cultural Society years ago to have open dialogue between Germans and Jews and and Americans and Germans, etc., and uh, to discuss this this thing openly. So, um, um, because as a German, you you're, you're filled with anger. You're filled with anger about the constant vilification of, of Germany and the constant uh, uh, blithe uh, uh, identification of, of Germany Nazi. I mean, it, 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 it so deeply angers me, and a lot of Germans, obviously. Um, it is done to the... To the um, um, in other words, in that process, you ignore all that Germany has produced, which is extraordinary fundamental uh, here in America and culturally. I mean, think of, obviously, the music and the literature. And yet, the worst crime that man committed against man arguably happened during that 12-year period. Uh, under the cloak of war, no question, but nevertheless, it happened. And and that is, these things are very difficult to reconcile. And if you're a non-thinking human being, a non-feeling human being, it doesn't bother you. But it... it when you do pay some attention, have moments of reflection, you say, whoa, man, oh, man, oh, man, what happened there is just unbelievable. And uh, I tried in my, um, 
you know, individual way to by playing soccer for the Maccabees, uh, whilst playing Nazis during the week on the rap patrol and combat and what have you. I played soccer with the Star of David on my shirt because I'd, I'd be damned if I will be um, um, identified with that 12-year period. I am not, have not been, and didn't grow up with those kind of prejudices. I did not. So um, um, it's 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 a conundrum, you know, and uh, it forever causes a kind of kind of almost schizophrenic. Uh, um, attitude towards your own country and, and I'm repeating now I'm proud of where I came from I grew up in, in, in although with enormous difficulties but I said I'm proud of it and um, um, yet there's that blight on the, the soul of, of the German people because of that um, damn Hitler regime anyway there you are one thing I love about your story is that you're one of those people from everything I can gather from reading this book. I mean, really the odds, I mean, the odds were you may have even been, there were bombing and so forth and the hospital you were born in was destroyed. You, you were lucky even to survive, but then yet you came to America, you know, you, you parked cars, you were a valet, you did various odd jobs and you persevered. I was a cowboy. I was a (laughs) mover of furniture, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, and but you, cars was a small thing. but you you persevered. You persevered, and you you've you built bet. this great uh, uh, career. I mean, I admire people who have a great work ethic, and that seems like that's a huge part of your story. That strength comes from my German culture. It really does. It comes from having to earn my living early on um, uh, after my father died to to have any kind of money in my pocket. Uh, I worked on farms and and in my village and. Uh, I just don't ever remember anyone not working. And that work ethic comes from the culture from which I stem, you know. So, um, and it's that, it is that work, work ethic that a lot of German immigrants brought to, to these shores and uh, helped make America great. You did, uh, in the early days, I mean, you did, you were on Broadway, uh, you were on television, uh, you did features, uh, of, of that period of career. You, you ran into so many big names. Who were some of your favorites? I would say, arguably, uh, Marlon Brando, I would say, Brando, and, and Jardine Page, who I did a play with on Broadway. Brando, I did a film with called Mori Tori in 1964-65, I forget. And um, um, it's one of the most prodigiously gifted actors. Um, powerful man, good athlete. We threw the football behind the stages at 20th Century Fox in between scenes and would have a lot of political discussions you know, about, about uh, Germany, German history. And he was very concerned at that time with civil rights and, and the treatment of American Indians and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, one of the most charismatic people I've ever met, I think. And um, Jardine Page was one of the most gifted actresses uh, before Meryl Streep we had America. Right. And I had the fortune of doing a play with her on Broadway. You had a great story in there about a little compliment you gave her. And I, I yes. love that story. I don't know if you want to share it. Well, she had beautiful breasts. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so we, 
we uh, we waited behind backstage for each other's cue to go on. And one day I couldn't resist it. I said, Geraldine, you have beautiful breasts. She says, oh, now. And she blushed a little. And Rip will be very, very jealous. Rip Torn was her husband. The great actor, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, that aside, she was a brilliant actress. I, I, I love that story. <laughs> oh, that made me chuckle. Um, now, um, I remember, uh, and this is um, maybe about 20 years ago, I saw on one of the cable stations, I saw this, and I, I had seen you in, in soap operas and so forth, but I wasn't really familiar with your previous work, and I saw this movie Colossus, The Forbin Project. And at the yep. time, I looked at that lead actor, that young man, uh, a yep. young Eric Braden in that 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 movie, and I said, "Boy, man, that guy looks like James Bond." Only did I find out this the last few days, you actually had a meeting with Cubby Broccoli. That's right, exactly. And uh, he, a lot of people have always assumed that I was from the British Isles somewhere, British Commonwealth, and because I'd learned British English in school, and he had seen Colossus and and hadn't known about all the. Germans I played, and because at that time, people who were in movies didn't watch TV. And so he approached me, and then uh, we had a meeting, and he asked me after lunch, he says, do you still have a British passport? I said, I, I have a German passport. And um, um, that was the end of that. And he wouldn't even, uh, they didn't even allow an American to play James Bond. Uh, never mind a German, and uh, imagine the imagine the consternation in in Great Britain if a German had played uh, James Bond. Oh my God, that would have been sacrilege. So anyway, that was the end of that. And it's a, a, a couple of things. First of all, you would have been great at it. I think. Uh, I mean, you just had that look. I mean, I mean, I remember, and I was in college, and I'm looking at this movie. I'm like. Why didn't they ever tap this guy for James Bond? And then, yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing. Now, it was that that was the movie you had to change your name over, wasn't it? That's right. And uh, from Hans Kudigas, uh, a name that I obviously was born with, and I did Rap Patrol with, and Broadway with, and uh, I guest starred on more nighttime television shows than almost any other actor, from Mission Impossible to Gunsmoke to Hawaii Five O to Maritala Moore, and on and on and on. And uh, um, Lou Wasserman, who was then the head of Universal Studios, um, and they asked me to do a screen test for that film. I did, and um, he's, after the screen test, he said, I want him uh, to star in that film, but I, no one with a German name was star in an American picture, so he needs to change his name. And... Uh, that news came to me when I was in, in Madrid, in Spain, doing a film with Raquel Welch and Burt Reynolds and Jim Brown, the great football player. I'm talking about Ohio, he played for Cleveland. Didn't yeah, he? absolutely. My that's hometown. Right. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. And uh, Jim was a great Mike Garvin, an athlete. And anyway, so um, hence the name change. Very difficult process for me. Uh, my wife helped me a great deal getting through it because she reminded me of how chagrined I had been playing all these damn Nazis. And um, so finally I acquiesced and I said, okay. So I took the first part of the village I'm from in Germany called Bredenbeek. I needed something that I could relate to. And um, took the first part, Braden, and 
there we go, Eric Braden. We're talking with Eric Braden. He has a new book out called I'll Be Damned, and we'll be back right after this on TV You Grew Up With. TV You Grew Up With is brought to you by Scott Evest. Great clothing plus tons of pockets for your stuff. Well, that's Scott Evest. And to learn more and get a super special Scott Evest deal, go to jimherald.com slash vest. That's jimherald.com slash vest. Click on the link we provide there and use the coupon code jimherald, one word all smushed together there, jimherald, and you'll get 20% off your purchase. And you might ask, well, what is so great about Scott Evest? And I am going to tell you. Now, if you're like me, what do you do if you have tons of stuff to carry around, whether you're uh, just strolling around town or you're traveling or whatever, and you have all these gadgets and gizmos and things and you want them with you, but you have nowhere to put them? Well, that used to be a tough question, but now it's easy because of Scott Evest. Think about carrying all of your stuff without worrying about an extra bag or misplacing anything. Just carry everything right on you, on your person with a Scott Evest. Now they have all kinds of clothing, vests, where it all started, jackets, shorts, pants for men, for women, but all of it is super convenient. Now think about a Scott Evest, for example, I have their Quest vest. Great at the airport. You can just put everything in your vest and just put that through security. Let them scan it. No bags to fool around with. No extra baggage charges. Now, now I think some of the airlines are uh, starting to charge for carry-ons, if I'm not mistaken. Well, <laughs> you're wearing your bag, essentially, and it looks great. It's stylish. Uh, just tons of po- – fantastic. And it's great for any kind of travel, air travel or otherwise. You can carry everything from your phone a bottle of water, and even a full-sized laptop with a Scott E-Vest. Now, I just got their new packet jacket, Scott's new and improved windbreaker, and perfect for the time of year we're coming up on. In my climate, we just got into spring, and you want to have some kind of windbreaker on. Uh, but this is great, and like all the other Scott E-Vest uh, products, they have a ton of pockets sewn in, and it's fantastic. And just like all of my Scott E-Vest's uh, pieces of clothing, and I'm building quite a collection now. I love it. So I invite you to do what I did. Discover the power of pockets. Go to jimherald.com slash vest. That's jimherald.com slash vest. Click on the link I provide there and use the coupon code jimherald and you'll get 20% off your purchase. Thanks, Scotty Vest. We're back on TV you grew up with. Our guest today is Eric Braden. We're talking about his career and his new book, I'll Be Damned. So Eric Braden ended up in a, in soap operas. And the thing is, is that, uh, I mean, uh, whether it's fair or not, and, and uh, I don't think it's fair, th- there's been a little bit of snobbery uh, in the acting profession uh, about soap operas. Did you feel yeah. that way when you, in 1980, when you, you, you took it on uh, on a short-term yep. basis? Did you have that kind of yep. uh, prejudice? Yep. yep, no question about it. And there were friends of mine who shall remain nameless who um, I did a lot of um, um, television with in the 60s and 70s sort of said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing this show. Really? I said, yeah. And all I have to say is, where are they now? You know, and um, they're either gone or haven't been seen since. It's it's, um, it's a tough business we're in, and I'm, it's one of the best decisions I've made. But 
I made it with a great amount of trepidation. I didn't really want to do that first. And um, since that time, of course, I'm very happy I've made that decision. And um, But was it difficult first? You bet. No question. And I think that, uh, you know, when you took it on for the short term, when they asked you to come back, you, you felt that the, the character of Victor Newman had to be fleshed out. He had to be more three-dimensional. Was that right. an important part of deciding to continue when they fleshed that was, that was the That was the only way. I did continue. And there was a moment I played with my wife, uh, Nikki, Mary Thomas Scott, who I love working with, and um, she had asked me, it was Christmas time and on the show, and she asked this mysterious millionaire and by now billionaire, uh, what about your childhood? And, and I had always been reluctant to talk about it. So finally, Bill Bell was a genius, and he and I had discussed that before, but he came up with a brilliant storyline. And in that scene, I explained to her that I was born in an, I was raised in an orphanage from the age of seven on. The moment I did that scene, I walked into my dressing room and I said, I'm going to stay. Because for the first time, uh, there was a chance to play a bad guy with a history that explained why he was bad. And that opened up a possibility of you know, great vulnerability in there and a very conflicted personality. I mean, Victor loves his family, but at the same time, he doesn't trust anyone in it because of those early childhood experiences. And that, that it was a brilliant uh, Stroke by by Bill Bell, and I have been there ever since. Is there any bit of Hans Gudegast or Eric Braden in Victor Newman? Yeah, um, good question. Um, yeah, obviously, I you know I personally don't take any shit, and and, <laughs> and uh, Victor Newman doesn't, and uh, I don't care who it is. Um, um, he, and I'm very close to my family, but I really am close to my own family. And uh, without, you know, without the suspicion and all that, um, but that I share with him. And I share with him the that basic feeling of abandonment that you feel when your father dies early, you know, and then afterwards you plunge into into poverty. You feel abandoned, and and uh, that I have in common with Victor Newman. Therefore, it's easy to access those emotions, you know. Um, um, but the I, I lack any kind of manipulation in that sense. I'm not a manipulative person. I, what, what, do you, what do you see is what you get. I react to it immediately to stuff. And I don't harbor it and then manipulate and bullshit. I just react to it. You know how I feel. And um, Victor schemes and plans. <laughs> so in, in that regard, I have very little in common with him. But in, in some ways, yes, very similar. You bet. Do... Um 
do people realize how tough uh, in in terms of uh, I mean, it's not like digging a ditch or something like that, but uh, acting in a in a soap opera and the volume of work you have to do and the volume of memorization and the pages you have to learn and just being on constantly. Do you think that's appreciated amongst the general acting community? No, there's not. But you refer to digging a ditch. I've done that, too. I knew I've worked on farms. I've worked on farms. I've done all the hard labor. That's a different kind of hardness. Uh, but uh, committing this amount of dialogue to memory, uh, well, um, it is the hardest part in our business for an actor, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, most nighttime or film actors would would do in their pants if they had to do uh, <laughs> what we have to do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they would shake, trust me. I've seen it once or twice. They should remain nameless, but, uh, you know, sweat pouring down there. I was saying, holy mackerel, what do you guys do here? This is just insane. Um, let me give you an example. A film, my son is directing a film right now, of a script that he wrote called Den of Thieves with Gerard Butler and 50 Cent and uh, O'Shea Jackson and a great cast. And he wrote it himself, and he, I just played a cameo part on it, and my son directed. They did about, I think, three pages that day. And about noon, we started at, at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. Around noon, I called my son over, who directed the film, and I said, you know, by this time we would have done 60 pages. He says, you must be kidding. I said, no. <laughs> so it's now it's a different medium, obviously. It's a different, totally different animal. And, and But we shoot with three cameras at one time. It's very different. But for an actor... Um, it is an enormous challenge, and and you really have to get used to it. You sketch it. This was when you when you look at those pages. You said, "What? I'm supposed to do this? I've done as many as sixty-two pages in one day." Wow! And uh, but for example, last what was a week and a half ago, and on Friday I did forty-two pages. The day before, thirty-one. Um, it's it's. Or at least ten or fifteen or twenty, and um, so it is a much um, ignored medium in a sense. It is. It is. Um, I've done it all from nighttime to Broadway, to Shakespeare, to films, and trust me, uh, soaps are the hardest medium for an actor in our business. Period. You talked about your son. Uh, family, like Victor, it's very important to you. I mean, you, have, you have a multi-decade marriage, which to me seems like to be a very uncommon thing in Hollywood. Yeah. And then you just have such, uh, you express such abiding love for your son. I mean, talk to yeah. us about the important uh, importance of family and both those people in your life. Well, you know, when you, when you um, leave... Um, your roots and your family and all that, then obviously having your own son is of extraordinary importance and and um, deep importance. When he was born, it was arguably one of the happiest moments in my life, if not the happiest. And um, we've been close ever since. Um, simple as it is. I've done sports with him. I've boxed with him. I've, I've played tennis with him. I've done everything with him. And there were a lot of discussions, and he's very bright, and um, so now he's as a writer, a very good writer. But this is his first film that he directs uh, off his own script. So I was very proud to be there. 
uh, called Den of Thieves, and it's a heist film um, about a robbery of, of a Federal Reserve Bank. And it's a fantastic script. So um, I couldn't have been prouder than I was last week when the shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, and when I was in that film, I loved every moment of it. So, yes, I'm very close to my son and um, close to my granddaughters, you know. Um, yeah. Now, um, a, a couple of quick things I want to get into uh, quickly because I know you're waiting for another interview and you've been very generous right. with your time. Um, the fans. Uh, some actors are kind of arm's length with fans, but you seem to have a real appreciation for them. How important are the fans? I mean, you know, it, first of all, it's it's my nature to to be kind to people. But I mean, with fans, without them, where you and I wouldn't have this discussion. Amen. That's as simple as it is. I mean, how can you not be uh, warm and grateful to fans? And I, I don't understand that. I never have understood it. And then the two uh, people who impressed me the most in regard to that were Muhammad Ali, who was wonderful with fans, and, and Pele, the soccer player. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in, in both of their presence when when uh, um, they dealt with fans, and I was so deeply impressed, I, I can't begin to tell you. It's, it's um, instead of this, this at length, and, and no, no, don't bother me, and what the shit is, what is that all about? <laughs> you kidding me? I mean, it is the fans who pay our bills, and if you will. Now we entertain them, and return they give us their loyalty, and and but I give them my loyalty back. I'm very grateful to fans. Are you kidding? When I'm around actors or athletes or whatever who are who are unkind to fans, I say, hey, come here. When you're around me, you don't do that shit. Okay, you're warm to people. That's Good all. Let's do it. Good for you. One last question. Yep. Um, it occurs to me that we're in a golden age of television with the nighttime shows and the streaming shows. But to me, those shows uh, like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or all those shows, they've really kind of used the soap opera format to to lift their game because episodic television like the ones you guest starred in the 60s and the 70s and things were very, you know, 60 minutes and this show's over and we start a new one. But the arcing right. storyline, they've basically taken the form of the soap opera. So really – the Current TV and this new golden age of TV owes a lot to soap operas, doesn't it? You bet. I totally agree with you, and I think it will continue because people throughout the ages, starting with Homer and and the Greeks and probably prior to that around the campfires, people were interested in stories. They love stories. You know, when my my eldest granddaughter used to ask me, Opa, tell me a story when she went to bed, I would always have to tell stories. And it's, it's as old as man. And people love stories. And in soap operas, we allow them to watch the stories. And in the South, for example, in the African-American community, it's called the stories. It's not called a soap opera. I'm watching the stories. And for that reason, it's, it's, it's an innate need in people to, to hear stories. And uh, so I think the television executives who cut that off are not very smart. Our guest has been Eric Braden. The book is I'll Be Damned, How My Young and Restless Life Led Me to America's Number One Daytime Drama. Eric, thank you so much. You're such a gentleman and such a pleasure to meet you today. Jim, I, I, I enjoyed it. Okay. And, and you're from Ohio? Yes, sir. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cleveland. My Jim Brown was a, uh, we got to know each other on that film. 
and uh, I hope the Cleveland Browns will <laughs> one day get back to that. I hope so. We got a long way you know? to go to get back to those glory days. A long way. But, but you, go Cavs. <laughs> but you do it with the Cavaliers. You yes, do it with the Cavaliers. And, and LeBron James, my God, what an athlete. What an athlete. He reminds me of Jim Brown in a yep. sense. Very much. He's, He's like that's extraordinary athletes. Absolutely. And uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you've been. Last year you wanted, uh, I, I was happy for you guys. Thank goodness. Because you have been wanting uh, it to happen for so long. Since 1964. All right, man. Be cool, Jim. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Talk sir. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I got to say, I have never been a huge soap opera fan, but I think uh, I think Eric just converted me. What a nice guy. And really, I highly recommend his book. I really enjoyed it. I read it from cover to cover. It was really a page turner. And to hear how he went from such a difficult situation uh, to, uh, you know, the height of his profession is really, uh, really a testament to him. So, Eric, thank you. And uh, I hope everybody will check out I'll Be Damned. And I'll Be Damned. The show is over. <laughs> but we'll be back next week. We have some great guests coming up on the docket. We have uh, scheduled interviews with Ed Asner. The legend from uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant and so many other things. I mean, I just can't believe I'm going to get to talk to Ed Asner. It's so awesome. And then uh, in a, a couple of days after that, we have an interview scheduled with William Daniels. Now, you may know him as the voice of Kit from Knight Rider, or you may also know him from his Emmy Award winning work on the great classic series St. Elsewhere. Also, he was in The Graduate and has done a lot of Broadway and just a prolific, prolific man who's been doing it for decades. And we're going to talk to him as well. So I'm telling you, stick with TV you grew up with. We'll be back next time. We'll talk to you then. Stay tuned.